Today on the Bottom Line Podcast, we're talking with Mark Allen, known to many as a professional golfer and now radio host on 3RW. Today, he's chatting with me about his bowel cancer journey and how he's remained positive despite the many hurdles he's faced over the years. Mark, thanks so much for joining me here today. I need to say up front that I know you've had a really tough few years, but am I right in saying you're currently cancer-free? Stephanie, it is. Um, Technically, I'm uh, nine months cancer-free and I've had a pretty good 2020, 2019 I spent a fair time in hospital. You know, I've got all my energy back. I'm really looking forward to the future with my family. It's almost like just a bad dream. You know, I, I, it doesn't even feel like it ever happened, to tell you the truth. It's just I've got a few things that I live with ongoing, but, you know, I still feel like I'm 95% of who I was. That's fantastic. And I think that's really important first up, that positivity. And there is, you know, when people get given that cancer diagnosis, often they think, the worst Mm. but I think it's good to give people hope and you are a shining beacon I'd like to go through that journey with you you are a big advocate for wanting more Aussies to understand bowel cancer however when you were diagnosed I can remember hearing you say that you didn't know what a colonoscopy was you weren't really bowel cancer aware how did you discover you had bowel cancer initially well, I don't want to drag you through the whole story, but can I tell you that once my kids went to primary school, I used to drop them both off and then I would go down to the cafe and because I was a sports radio host, I would read the papers and have a coffee. So I'd have that coffee and I felt like I always had to empty again. Yes. I didn't know that that was an early sign. I, I didn't have a clue because I would, you know, like most people, you get up in the morning, you have a shower and you, you get all that sort of stuff done. But I, it continued on through the day, but I just thought it was because I was having a coffee. Down the track, uh, I used to wipe my bum and every once in a while I would see a little bit of red blood. I went to the GP because I was very, you know, health-minded. I used to go and get my blood tested at the end of every year. And she said to me, have you lost any weight? And I said, no. Um, she said, your blood tests look fine. It, I imagine um, that uh, it's just a hemorrhoid. And she gave me some hemorrhoid cream <laughs> and that worked a treat. No more bleeding for a little while. Anyway, it, it came back and forth every couple of months. And then at the very end of radio uh, in 2018, uh, I had three days left and it was a miracle because I was listening to our news service and it had Australia number two behind Switzerland for fixing people with bowel cancer, survival rates. So that clicked me in the gear again and I called the doctor on the spot and I got in there again and she had another look. I hadn't lost any weight. She said, well, maybe it's time for a colonoscopy. And like you were saying before, I I didn't even know what a colonoscopy was. So this was very early in December and I had a colonoscopy booked when I left there very late in January. And I went down to the golf club the next day. I saw a doctor who I knew uh, who owned a racehorse called Snitty Kitty and I used to win money (laughs) on Snitty Kitty. So I wanted to just go and talk to him about that horse. And I was almost bragging to him because he was a doctor and he was a friend of mine. I said, hey, I booked him for a colonoscopy at the end of uh, January. And he asked why. And he, you know, looked at me with some, you know, crazy eyes and said, hang on a second, do not wait. And he made a few phone calls to his friends and he got a hold. One of his friends was Professor Ian Jones, who is a superstar uh, in the industry. And he got me in pretty much three days later. Um, I had a colonoscopy booked the following Thursday. And when I woke up from that colonoscopy, I could see it in Professor Ian Jones's eyes that he had something to tell me. And he told me that they'd found 
a tumour in my rectum that was 10 centimetres from my anus. So all the, you know, every time somebody was trying to feel down there and see what was going on, it just it was, it was just too far away to be able to feel anything. So you were diagnosed and it was stage four, am I correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So after they found that one, then I was into, you know, every hospital straight away. I was so lucky they looked after me so well. I think it was a PET scan the very next day. One day later, I was driving my car and the phone rang and it was Professor Jones to tell me that they'd found another one in my, I think it's my left, left lung, and it was, you know, very, very close to being inoperable and we need to get you in very soon. It was right next to windpipes and arteries on the piece of film that you see. It looked like it was one millimetre away from being inoperable. So that's when I was in the next week straight away almost and they removed that first successfully it 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 felt like when i woke up i only had 50 percent of my lungs left but they told me they only took away about 15 to 20 percent of my lung capacity and then they did some radiation on the tumor in my rectum radiation with some chemo pills uh, and then they operated on that and they took that away and of course uh, i've got 20 percent of a rectum left which is amazingly going pretty well I've got to say. It's amazing. I mean, I had rectal cancer as well and I never thought I'd poo again in the same way, but after eight years, I'm nearly back to normal, which is quite phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing Uh, because I remember the first time because they put a bag on you when they do that and everything's got to heal up and and join the joins have got to be secure and everything. So um, when they took the colostomy bag off and that was about three months later, um, I was a little bit nervous, but I, I had no control at all. I was incontinent. You and I had a conversation, actually, I think. I think that's our very first conversation. We discussed the reversal and yes. um, having a stoma. <laughs> yes. And it, it, was, it was a big relief getting rid of the stoma. And I'm really, I'm always careful when I talk about that stoma because I know there are some people who've got a stoma for life. Yes. It was a horrible experience for you and I having that bag on our tummies and I really feel for people who have to live with one for the rest of their lives but I guess you do get used to it at some stage but you know I imagine with like same as everybody that three months of that I didn't get any sleep um I can't even remember that period in 2019 when we went right through it but um what was very helpful in the end is you, you get these pills now what are these pills called I forget them but I, I was always told to take my medicine after food uh, on a full stomach to take all the pills that they were giving me through the year, uh, except for the one that helps slow down the poo. Gastro stop? Gastro stop. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why, because I have to take them regularly, but I always forget the name of them. That's probably because I don't want to take them. I bet it's a mental <laughs> thing. Anyway, finally the doctor said, hey, listen, when are you taking these gastro stops? And I told him I'd take them on a full stomach. He said, no, 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 start taking them about half an hour before you do it. Um, and, and that changed everything. And, and now, you know, it's probably been a year since I've, um, you know, pooing the right way again. And um, I'm only taking the pills probably maybe once or twice a week, um, usually when I've got to play golf the next day just to make sure I can get around. But Not many toilets around a golf course, are there, Mark? <laughs> no, but I know where they are these days. I bet I'm you do. <laughs> Even now, you know, when I started playing golf, I was in a cart and I was regularly visiting the toilet uh, it's a year on and now I'm carrying my golf bag, I'm walking out in holes and, and more often than not, I don't even visit the toilet on the way around. So, you know, the doctors did a great job. You're an incredibly positive human being. 
How did you keep that positivity up? Especially because, you know, it was a relatively tough time and we'll come to the next portion of your journey shortly. But how do you keep positive? I didn't want to be sick, never at any stage. I hated being sick and I did everything I possibly could not to feel sick. And I know in my golf career, when I was playing bad, I hated playing bad. But if anyone ever asked me how I was playing, I always said, I'm playing great because I was trying to mentally overcome uh, that. And, you know, I was taught at an early age a positive self-talk when you're a professional golfer because you hit a lot of bad shots and a lot of things go wrong playing professional golf. You miss a lot of cuts. You miss planes. You turn up in your hotels and already stacks of stuff happens. That's no good. And if you live in the negative world, then that's no good for your golf. Because of that, I didn't want to be sick. I didn't want to be sick for my wife. I didn't want to be sick for my kids. I couldn't bear the thought of leaving them without me, to tell you the truth, and I still get emotional talking about that. 100%. You know, it's funny, in my case, I never felt bad because of the cancer. I only ever felt bad because of the treatment. So I didn't want to be a sick person. So I tried my hardest. In terms of that, what were you on throughout your journey? Well, after they operated, then... The doctors all believe that if they put radiation on the uh, first tumour, so the one that was in my rectum, that would help it not spread through down the track. So they could have cut it out straight away, but because it was already surging through my body and and turned up in another place, they decided that the radiation, more often than not, touch wood, cross fingers, all those things, um, it's a big help in it. It's stopping treating it once once they get rid of it. So uh, they put radiation on it. It shrunk down enormously with the radiation and the chemo pills. And then once they cut that out and then once the bag was removed, they gave me a little bit of breathing room to where my body could recover because, you know, I went from 88 kilos down to 71 kilos. And, again, it was nothing to do with the operations. It was just my body desperately trying to recover. And once I got a little bit of my weight back to about 84, 83, 84, that's when they put me on um, chemotherapy through the drip. But, yeah, it wasn't long after that they found another one in, in the other side of my lungs. Yes. So that I had about, I think I had one clear test and then the second time around, three months later after that first one, they found one. And it was a big one in the other side of my lungs. 2019, you yeah. discovered that? Yeah, about, about this time last year, mm. uh, they found it. So um, we had a trip to Noosa, they found it, we went to Noosa, they came back and cut it out, but there was nothing else in my body and they were very positive about that because they thought normally if it does come back and there is one the size that they found, that it's usually going through, but they didn't find a thing. Uh, There was not a, you know, my body wasn't, they called it hot. There was no other hot spots anywhere. Mm. So they cut that one out. And then we went back uh, three months later and we got a clear one. Then three months later, they found another one on my rib cage, would you believe? And they didn't even count that as a secondary. So they, when they pulled the third one out through my rib cage, uh, the doctors thought that maybe a little bit of a few cells might have sheared off on the way past the ribs. And at one stage, I thought I was going to lose that rib but then they did an ultrasound and there was a bit of room that was just stuck to the tissue, not the bone. So then I didn't have to lose a rib. So they cut it out. And when the biopsy came back, it was exactly what they thought. It was exactly the same as the third tumour. Um, and somehow a couple of cells had just knocked off on the way past the rib. So they don't even count that as a secondary. And just last week I had 
another one, and that was all clear. Oh, and, and the beautiful words is, I still echo in my ears is, Mark, there wasn't even a skerrick anywhere else. So um, it was great news. My wife and I had a little cry, and and, and now, you know, I'm back out mowing lawns and doing all the jobs <laughs> Again, so nothing changes once we get going. How did you feel with those latter diagnoses? Was it a different feeling to your first diagnosis? Yes, once the third one in particular, you know, you you read stuff, you know, you end up Googling away. You shouldn't probably do it, but I think it's hard not to. And when they done uh, the radiation and they had, you know, had two goes of chemotherapy, that was all designed for it not to come back. Yes. And when it came back so quickly, um, that was probably, you know, on par with uh, when we were first diagnosed at stage four because I thought maybe, you know, if, if, I, if all that radiation and chemotherapy, which was designed, couldn't stop it, then maybe I was in trouble. But, again, the doctors were brilliant. They described it to me and they said, look, there's nothing else. So maybe the way they described it, it was funny. They said, listen, sometimes you spray for a whole field for mushrooms but one little mushroom's just too tough for that spray. Yes. And that's what they said about this one particular one in my lung. So hopefully, fingers crossed, they're right. So far they are because, you know, that's 12 months ago. So, Are you fearful that all, I mean, I know uh, having had cancer myself and I haven't been through the journey that you have, I was stage three and mine hasn't reoccurred, but it's always in the back of my mind and like you, I've got a young family. Is it something that you are fearful of or do you just part, take that as part of your journey and you need to be proactive? Uh, at the moment I'm carefree. Yes. But I reckon about it usually starts about a week out from uh, the next uh, PET scan. So uh, my mood changes. I'm, I'm a bit testy. I'm thinking forward. And especially, you know, when we, I think we've had five and, and we've had two bad ones. So, yeah, that'll, that'll change. But look, at the moment, I'm pretty good, you know, and I think that's because I have got so much of my energy back and, you know, I'm, you know, golf golf was always a bit of a barometer for me and I'm playing, you know, I'm playing good golf and I'm walking the golf course again. So I feel like all of my energy uh, and strength is back. So that gives me great hope. So, you know, talk, right now I'm fine. Uh, talk to me in about two months and it might be a different answer for you, Steph. <laughs> um, you have, you've spoken of your children and your family and them being your driving force and we've spoken because we've got children of a similar age. Did you speak to them about the diagnosis? How was that in the family setting? That's a really good question. Uh, my doctors, when we were told, we were stage four, told us not to tell the kids. They were 12 and 10. Mm-hmm. They knew what cancer was, but they, they wouldn't have understood the battle and the hospitals and the operations. They said, don't tell them. And, and we didn't. We didn't tell them for a long, long time. We just said, Dad's going to get a couple of lumps cut out. Down the track, you know, they knew what was going on and they were eased in. Uh, and, and these days they're aware that, you know, I'm going okay. So they know I've had cancer. They've seen it in the paper. You know, the papers have been here. They've been in, they've been in the pictures for the paper and they saw everything that's been on TV. So I think we timed it just right to where they didn't know what was going on. And now that they do know, it's a good story and not a bad story. So we fluked it, Stephanie. But everyone's case, I don't think that's probably necessarily the right thing to do to everybody. No. It was the right thing to do for Tricia and I and somehow it's turned out to be a nice story but it's probably the wrong advice for everybody. I think everyone's situation is unique. There's not a right or wrong answer to it. It's it's what you think is best for you and your family. It's wonderful that it's turned out 
I'm curious, what did you do with your with your kids at, at the same? Did you tell them? My Angus was only two and a half at the time when I was diagnosed. So he knew mummy was sick, but he didn't know to what degree. He didn't know about cancer. However, he probably from about the age of six, and obviously my story by that stage was positive and I um, had got through it. He has been very much part of my journey. He does stuff for Bowel Cancer Australia. He's done some videos and he's an advocate at school. He raises money for bowel cancer. <laughs> Good on him. He can roll off and say bowel cancer is Australia's second deadliest cancer. So he's very aware of it. He's even done a book actually around bowel cancer. He features in it on how to tell your children. <laughs> he's very passionate about sharing those those stories with his peers. Well, that's fantastic. I think it does vary on A, the child and B, the family and also what the possible outcome might be as well. Mm. Mark, obviously you were in your 40s when you were diagnosed. The screening starts from 50. What are your thoughts around screening age? It's crazy. 50 is crazy. We were diagnosed about a week after we were diagnosed with uh, being stage four, the best turned up. You know, it was useless to me. Yes. So to me, I'm reading that there are more and more people in their 40s and 30s. Yes. Much more than there used to be getting bowel cancer. And to tell you the truth, I think now that, you know, Bowel Cancer Australia has done such a good job in telling people and explaining to people that if you do catch it early, it's very fixable. Right. Then I think the test should be sent out at 40, 45 and 50. If the test was sent to me when I was 45... I would still have a rectum and all of my lungs. Yes. It's really important that we do it. Now, if you just want to put it in the top drawer and put it away, well, that's up to you. But there'll be plenty of people who'll go, you know what, I'm doing this. And even if it catches 2% of them, 1% of them, it's worth it. It's interesting you say that, Mark, because a couple of weeks ago we put out a report by Bernard Salt, who was commissioned by Bowel Cancer Australia. He has said people now between the age of even 40, but 45 and 50, you know, we've got young children. Yes. We're at the age where we're actually giving back to the community. 50 once upon a time was older. I mean, now that I've hit 50, I don't think I'm yeah, old. No, it's not old. No, it's not old, Steph, you're right. And it's perceived as an old person's disease. I mean, 55% of bowel cancer patients are men. Mm. That's 8,500 men a year that are diagnosed. It's Australia's second deadliest cancer, and you're 100% correct. People are getting cancer younger, and the US have just recommended that screening goes from 45. Fantastic. So we are advocating the screening test it starts at 45. Right, it has to. It mm-hmm. has to. So you know, who's the next person like me? That, that's so right. We don't want that happening. I imagine um, men and women getting bowel cancer between the ages of 45 and 50, I think there'd be a pretty high number these days, you know, even if it's a 1,000. Let's, let's try and stop it. That's right, exactly. Mark, the thing that strikes me when we chat, and we've chatted a number of times over the last few years and shared our experiences, but you're authentic, you're honest. You know, I love that you talk about that it's blood in your poo and you wiped your bum because we need to really normalise this conversation. What are the three things from this conversation that you would like people to take away today? If, if your pooing has changed in any way, it's, it's time to go get checked. So if you think you have that coffee and that's making you a poo again, well, it, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. In my case, it wasn't. 
it wasn't. It was just the, the tumour was high enough up to where, you know, it was telling me that I was full and ready to empty, but I actually wasn't. It was just the tumour was, was stopping and coming all the way down. So that, that is one. Uh, two, don't hesitate. You know, and if you know anybody, if you even just bring it up in conversation, if you if you actually go and get a colonoscopy, I tell as many people as you can why. Oh, you know what? I'm going to get a colonoscopy next week. I saw a little bit of blood last time. I was wiping my I'm going to go get it done. Tell people because it, it'll encourage others to do it. I can't give you a third. I'm trying to think of a third. I, look, if you do, I, I don't think you want to be sick. That's that's the thing that really helped me. If you, if you do end up having bowel cancer, and I'm very sorry if you do, don't want to be sick. That's no good. That won't help you, not one bit. Your positive attitude is a true inspiration, and I know whenever I speak to you, you always give great hope, and thank you for all you've done to raise awareness for bowel cancer. It really is such an important thing you're doing, and I'm so glad for your recent diagnosis. Thanks, Mark. Good on you, Stephanie. Thank you. Anything for Bowel Cancer Australia. Thanks for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.